We are 46 days away from the elections in Taiwan. To discuss this all, we have on two incredible guests. First is Lin Feifan, currently a board member of New Frontier Foundation, and he was previously the 22nd Deputy Secretary General of the Democratic Progressive Party in Taiwan, spanning across both Tsai Ing-wen's first and second terms. Second is Lu Yezhong, a professor of, in the Department of Diplomacy at the prestigious Guoli Zhangzhi Dashue, or NCCU, received his PhD from George Washington University. This research specializes in international relations, U.S.-China diplomacy, U.S. foreign policy, and ethnic conflict. Super excited to have you guys on the show. Welcome. And also, just a disclaimer up front, the views expressed by both of our guests reflect only their own views, um, not the views of their institutions or universities. And while we're at it, I suppose my views don't reflect the institutional views of China Talk. Those rest solely on Jordan's Twitter feed, which, as we know, can change instantaneously. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think first question, just to get us started, um, this has been a totally wild election season thus far. To get us all up to speed, officially, it's a three-way race. For the DPP, we have current Vice President Lai Qingde, and he selected Xiao Meiqin as the Vice President. And she has been, so to speak, the de facto ambassador of Taiwan to the U.S. and very effective in D.C. And then on the pan-blue side of things, so to speak, we have two parties. We have the KMT, Kuomintang. Um, the candidate there is Hou Youyi. He's nominated Zhao Shaokang, who is even more pro-unification than the average KMT voter. And then we have a third party, the Taiwan People's Party, or TPP. Um, the candidate there is... Kowanja, and he selected Cynthia Wu Xining as vice president. If I understand correctly, she's a current legislative UN member for the TPP. So that's our setup right now. Also, I'm sure we'll discuss this. There were lots of negotiations between the KMT and the TPP about joining their tickets. And also, we had this weird spat with Guo Taiming, or Terry Go, founder of Foxconn. He flirted with the idea of running for president, and now, at the last moment, backed out altogether. First question... I'll go to Lin Feifan first. If you're a DPP politician or a typical pan-green voter who wants someone like Lai Qingda to win, how are you feeling right now? Yeah, I, I feel like uh, this election is actually quite extraordinary compared to the past experience we have that we wait like until the, to the last minute, like then we know who is going to run to the end. Uh, that's quite unusual, I, I have to say, that, well, the DPP candidate, William Lai, has uh, officially nominated uh, very earlier uh, this year. And he's committed to this campaign. But somehow, during uh, the course of these half years, that we don't know who is actually our opponent, who will run to the end, uh, will uh, the opposition form a new coalition, uh, or uh, they were just uh, run uh, independently or uh, separately. So we wait until the last minute to see uh, what's happening. And we got like a 45, 46 days left. And now uh, it's like a, a show's on. <laughs> so so uh, uh, now is the time to do the real campaign. Yeah. Something I wanted to ask you about, we saw from August to September, um, the DPP's polling numbers dropped kind of dramatically um, from around the 40s into the 30s. And since then, Lai Qingde's numbers have remained roughly in the 30s, which is, yeah, it's not a deal breaker because 
in Taiwan, you don't need a 50% majority to win the presidency. You just need to win above all the others. Do you think Lai Qingda and the DPP are, are supporters, are they, are they concerned about a victory or, or do they feel like given the split on the pan blue side of things, are they feeling pretty comfortable? Uh, to be honest, the, the, uh, the polling we've seen that recently, that there are many different polling numbers showed up and actually, especially during this month, all the people focusing on, uh, the discussion of the, the so-called blue and white cooperation, I mean, uh, two opposition parties came to TPP's, uh, cooperation. So people focusing on that, that is quite reasonable for us to see that because the majority of people focusing on those issues. So the polling number shows up and even the KMT supporters or TPP supporters, they will come out to express their attitude, political attitude, perhaps more, more than the DPP supporters. So I think that if we look at the polling right now, the VP lies supporting rates is actually, it's quite steady. Uh, while there are many different organizations, they have different numbers, but from our own, uh, calculation or our own polling data shows that, uh, his supporting rate doesn't drop significantly. It's actually maintained in a very steady way. And it's around like a 35, 30 something percent. And it's compared to the previous season, that's actually no big change. Yeah, so that's from our point of view. Yeah, but to be honest, that uh, while uh, seeing the polling right now, some people say that it's quite a, a, a very tight competition. Uh, some DPP supporters definitely have the concerns over the, the victory. So uh, they are now uh, working very actively to seek the, the, the victory uh, in 2024. The way I understand it, Lai Qingda has promised more or less that he's going to He's going to be very similar to Tsai Ing-wen and what mm -hmm. she's done over the past eight years. He said things like he's going to keep on calling Taiwan the Republic of China. The national flag will remain the same. I think he's trying to signal that we're going to keep things about the same and you're not going to see anything flashy or brand new. Over to Professor, Professor Lu. If you're someone who really doesn't want the DPP to be in power anymore, how are you feeling right now? Are you feeling optimistic that there will be a change? Are you worried? Yeah, uh, for that, uh, I would say I w I'm a little bit, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic uh, on this uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, according to the latest polls, there are more than 50% to 60% uh, general public people living in Taiwan do hope to have this political party turnover in Taiwan. Uh, not because we hate DPP or people hate DPP. I think for all political parties, uh, they have their legitimate right uh, to exert their influence in Taiwan's political arena. Uh, but the thing is, for political party turnover, for many people, it is not only we hope for better governance, but also this is uh, a practice for democratic consolidation in all full-fledged democracies. So people would say, uh, for example, in the United States, People from time to time would say there is a seven year each uh, or eight year each uh, when people get tired uh, of the current ruling party and they want uh, the opposition to be in power. And also, uh, secondly, I would say because uh, in the past few years, I think Feifan did a good job, but for DPP as a ruling party, uh, people may have a uh, some different views on that. And also, for ruling parties for such long period of time, there would be some political baggage 
for those kind of things, uh, for corruptions or accused corruptions, something like that. So I think it is fair for the general public to have a real hope that we can have a political party turnover. And also, let me rewind a bit uh, because as a uh, professor teaching uh, in Taiwan, interacting with local students for many, many years, I noticed that this time uh, it is quite interesting because for uh, the younger generation, many people, uh, they used to vote for DPP, but right now they somehow take a step back and trying to see uh, what are the real policies and political platform among those major political parties. I think this is a very good sign uh, for our uh, educated uh, younger generation to be fully aware of their own civil rights in this election. For sure. I think looking at Taiwanese history, it almost seems like it's, it's someone else's turn. We had from 92 to 2000, it was a KMT president, Li Donghui, and then it was a switch, Chen Shui-bian of DPP until 2008. And then a switch, Lai Ying-jio, KMT until 2016. And now we've had eight years of DPP again, Tsai Ing-wen. So it, yeah, it feels like it's someone else's turn. But unlike the DPP, this time around, it seems like the opposition movement has been really fractured, uh, much more fractured than it has in the past. I don't recall Lai Ying-jio having to deal with legitimate contenders um, for the presidency. Once he got the nomination, it was between him and the DPP candidate. But this time around, it's been, yeah, there's been at times a three-way split between people on the opposition side. Why do you think that is? Uh, why is it that the pan blue has had this fracturing and, and now we have an actual two-way split? Um, what do you think explains that? Uh, it is quite interesting. As we recall, uh, in the year 2016, uh, when uh, the de Democrat they were in control of the White House for eight years. Uh, how many Republican candidates back then? More than 12, okay? So sometimes, as you can see, when people do have this kind of uh, hope, uh, there will be the opposition split among themselves. So uh, this is natural uh, in a political process, but of course, as Fei Fan uh, just mentioned, this is quite extraordinary for Taiwanese uh, to get used to. But this time, uh, I would say because there is a huge population in Taiwan, uh, they really want for this political uh, party turnover. So there are so many hopefuls. They think they can win this election and they have their respective political power base. So uh, they somehow get different degree in confidence uh, trying to run for presidency and they all believe they can win. Uh, but be uh, practical. I think because we still have 40 days to go, I believe toward the end of the day, uh, right before the election, there will be a certain kind of strategic voting among the public voters. We do hope the best win, but we can still wait to see what are the strategies and also the policies uh, all candidates can provide to the general public and we can make our own choices. What kind of strategies are you referring to there? If you're a pan-blue voter and you, now you need mm -hmm. to cooperate between the KMG mm -hmm. and the TPP, what kind of strategies would help one of those candidates secure more votes than Lai Ching does ticket? Mm -hmm. uh, for that, uh, I would say, uh, according to, uh, there, are some, there are so many textbooks talking about this kind of strategic voting or journal articles. 
But uh, what is very interesting to me is uh, for the general public in Taiwan, there are uh, different levels for cooperation between KMT and TPP. Uh, for example, in the legislative yuan, this time you can see certain kind of collaboration among uh, between the two two parties. Uh, but for the presidential candidate, uh, it is quite clear that their individual supporters are already uh, going back uh, to their own camp. Uh, but the, one of the latest poll uh, just released this morning by the United Daily News, uh, it suggested that in terms of supporting uh, rate, VP Lai and Xiao Meixing, uh, they have 31% of the support. For Ho and Zhao, it's 29%. And for Ke and Wu, it's 21%. So you can see there is, I think some people would say, this is the honeymoon for a KMT. Uh, I think we uh, should be uh, concerned about this as a, a pen blue voter. We really want to see more concrete uh, policies coming out from the Hoyoyi camp so that this can help to consolidate uh, his voters. Definitely. A question for both of you, kind of along that. We have a lot of listeners here, uh, American in the Beltway, and it's easy to make comparisons between the American political system as well. In, in the United States, the Democrat Party, um, left of center party, they're very good at party unity. When Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House, she ruled with an iron fist. And if you were a Democrat, you voted Democrat no matter what. Republicans, on the other hand, are a total mess. The right of center party just can't seem to keep their people together. And there's, there's a pro-Trump and an, an anti-Trump camp and a, we don't know what on earth to do about Trump camp. And uh, it's a total mess. Is there something about right of center politics, which leads to fracturing and left of center politics, which doesn't. Is that true in Taiwan as well? I think for the time being, uh, I would suggest that uh, because for the general public in Taiwan, people are not so uh, sensitive to this kind of left to right ideology. So uh, especially for presidential elections, uh, I bet uh, most people would vote for the favorability uh, of individual candidates. So their personality, their integrity, their track record, uh, those are all in consideration. Yeah, I, I think I agree with uh, Dr. Liu that the U.S. system is quite different from, well, it's comparable, but somehow it's different from uh, the experience we have in Taiwan that at least in the uh, past, I would say 10 years or 15 years, that uh, DPP usually being seen as the party that uh, has a stronger unity, uh, but the KMT they lose the power in 2016. So after after that, you see the gradual like a uh, collapse of unities in the party within the party. Different factions are working separately to try to seize the control of the party. That that's what I, we have been seeing. And uh, even though the KMT wins the uh, uh, local election in 2018 and 2022. But it seems that there is a not a very strong party unities. What I cannot tell uh, is that the ideological driven situation or it's more because the resources uh, competitions inside the party among the factions. So there are many different types of issues uh, for both of the party, but that's what I observe. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know. Like historically, in, in 2019 and 2020, Lai Qingde was the premier, and he actually mounted a direct challenge yeah. to Tsai Ing-wen. But then 
they were able to resolve their differences. And I've also heard that Tsai Ing-wen probably would have liked a different DPP nominee as president. But once he was nominated, got to get behind him. Also, what Professor Liu was saying makes a lot of sense, too, about the, the personalities of, the, of the, the candidates. When I first heard the news that uh, Guo Taiming had nominated actress uh, Lai Peixia to be his vice presidential running mate, who admittedly had no political experience whatsoever, I was a little bit taken aback, to be honest. But I think, yeah, if you're, if you're catering for personality, if that's such a big component of why voters choose you, then that makes a lot of sense. Uh, because she was very popular um, yeah. in Taiwan, especially um, after her recent Netflix hit special. Also, Zhao Shao Kong is a media personality, um, has been a media personality for, for 20 years before having his KMT yeah. membership reinstated um, and joining politics again. One more question I have uh, for either of you. The spat between Ke Wenzhe and Hou Youyi about a joint ticket. The way I understand it, so they they made a deal where... They'd rely on polls between November 7th and November 17th. And whoever had higher numbers in a majority of the poll that they chose would be the president and the other would be the vice president in a joint ticket. And if there was a tie in the polls, a point would automatically go to Hoyoi of the KMT. And there was this whole fiasco about the margin of error. And Ko Wenja basically said that the KMT wants to double the margin of error and they want to play dirty with us. The way I see it, maybe I'm wrong, but the way I see it, Ko Wenzhou is very obviously wrong about this. A margin of error is simply plus or minus one divided by the square root of the sample size. So if a poll has 400 people, then it's one divided by a square root of 400, which is one over 20 or 5%, plus or minus 5%. So if you, let's say Hoyo Yi was at 48% and uh, Ko Wenzhou was at 40%. It's actually not clear who was the winner there because Ko Wenzhou's numbers could be between 35 and 45 and Hoyo could be between 43 and 53. So that would be a tie. But Ko Wenzhou just said, oh, look, KMT's trying to double the margin of error. They're playing dirty. Therefore, I'm out of this. That just, for a guy who self-proclaims his IQ of 157, that just seemed really dumb to me. Am I missing something there? Did I, did I understand the contract wrong or was this just silly politics? Okay, uh, uh, let me uh, respond to this uh, very quickly. Uh, as a uh, supporter for uh, the, the, the Pan Blue, and uh, I was uh, uh, looking, quite looking forward to a joint ticket for Ho and Ke. I do hope that we can turn to a new page in the book right now. But I think uh, that is quite important, as you just mentioned, uh, about the marginal error, or we call it sampling error. There is a uh, textbook definition on that. And uh, I believe for that, my credit would uh, go to uh, the KMT. I think their explanation and their definition uh, is correct uh, by the textbook. But as you also mentioned, uh, it is a political, I wouldn't say calculation, but uh, uh, of course it's a political move uh, to argue that uh, the TPP uh, was ambushed by the KMT for KMT is doubling the marginal error. Uh, this is a wrongful accusation to KMT. I, I have to say that. And also uh, for a KMT proposition, from what I uh, have watched from the, 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 the television or from the newspaper, I think KMT was adopting a, uh, a correct strategy in which open and make it public 
that is a more responsible way to explain to its supporters. Okay, good to hear. I wasn't going absolutely crazy there. I just thought. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. excuse me. Uh, and let me add one more very small footnote uh, to what I just said. Uh, and for the sampling part, uh, the TPP argued that if any survey or poll only conducted with landlines, those kind of survey or polls are not included. This is quite unusual in Taiwan because what we are all familiar with, the Mainland Affairs Council, they did this kind of political attitude uh, between China and Taiwan, that kind of survey released every three months. Those surveys are conducted with landlines and landlines only. So if any sample conducted by landlines is not accurate, then why the MAC, our government agencies, are adopting this kind of uh, way of uh, doing research, right? So, sorry, as a professor, I need to add this. <laughs> I think we probably need to have find someone from TPP to represent their views as well. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. <laughs> but no, yeah, the landline sampling thing, that's a big deal because young people definitely don't have landlines. When I was living in Taiwan, I didn't even have a phone number. I contacted every hotel I went to, every restaurant I got food from. It was directly over line, the messaging app, which is ubiquitous there. I just had a data plan, no phone number. So... If it's only landlines, you're getting you're getting a skewed sample for sure. Yeah, TVB would argue that they only include the survey conducted by cell phone and cell phone only. That's another way of skewing the data as well. You know, you know, actually, what 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 we feel about that is like, a, I mean, sitting in a TPP position is that during this past month, we're kind of uh, we're not in the game. Not like we want to intervene in this process, but it's more like. Yeah, we're seeing these two oppositions fighting each other and all the details and all the math problems and we don't know actually what's the matter with the country. What is it all about? It's not a debate between KMT and, and, and TPP about their, I mean, national stance or policy. It's not like that. And it's more like the, the fighting of all the technical problems, uh, in terms of their cooperation that it's quite unusual and yeah, to be honest, it's amazing. I, I just imagine Lai Qingde and DPP yeah. taking just a big sigh of relief when, mm. when the joint ticket collapsed and just, just going to sit back and watch the chaos unfold and then, and we'll just see what happens. So, but now, like we said, there's 40, 46 days left. So now, now the real yeah. games begin and yeah. it's going to be important. Yeah. yeah. We mentioned before, uh, Professor Lu was talking about just happy that uh, the Taiwanese voters are have a renewed political consciousness um, and are really taking their civic duty seriously. So want to go there now and talk about and talk about the main issues on the party's platforms and what the candidates are saying, um, both related to China and not related to China at all. Um, let's do China first. Yeah, sort of abstract question first. I have a number of friends who are from mainland China who've never been to Taiwan. And if I were to ask them about Taiwan in general, Odds are they would say something like, listen, unification is inevitable and it's the right course of action, not because of history or nationalism or some kind of legal argument, but because we're all part of the same family, the Yang An Yichiagan. So my question to both of you um, is, are you? Well, I can understand how Chinese people think about, I mean, their own identity and, and their relationship with Taiwanese. 
like I can understand how that form or formulate as many of mainland uh, Chinese people, they probably doesn't have the chance to come to visit Taiwan and to experience that the similarity and differences between Taiwan and China, and they probably do, doesn't have the chance to understand how the Taiwanese identity is being formed. Uh, so I can understand how they think because through their education, throughout their, especially those like government propaganda and all the national educations, you can actually understand that. But from our point of view, we also have been through the process of the national education that teaching our parents' generation that they should identify themselves as purely Chinese, not with a different identity. But I think it is the democracy that changed the whole understanding of ourselves. It's a democratic process that helps us to form the new identity, uh, especially after after the 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 ease of the martial law in late 80s. And during 90s, we have the whole experience of the democratization. And that process helped people to understand that, yes, I'm a citizen. I am a citizen living uh, in Taiwan. I can have a choice. I can, I can vote on our parliamentary uh, leaders. We can vote on our presidency directly. So that helped us to identify ourselves from a new angle, uh, totally different from the previous uh, identity. So I think that's democracy help us to recognize ourselves as Taiwanese. So I think that differences, uh, it's really, it's not just the identity differences, but it's also the regime differences between Taiwan and China that put us on uh, a totally different ways of living. Uh, Professor Lu? Yeah. What would a pan blue person say in response to this question? Are we part of the same family on both sides of the strait? Mm -hmm. I believe for pan blue uh, supporters, uh, they usually share the views that uh, in terms of culture ties, religious ties, and even history, yes, we are very close to each other across the Taiwan Strait. But in the meantime, I think this is a question about sense and sensitivity in the meantime. So in terms of sensitivity, uh, as I just mentioned, uh, it is all about this kind of interactions, cultural ties, we can uh, engage uh, or interact with each other. And also in terms of the, the sense, the rationality here, uh, it is uh, quite important to know that, especially for the county leadership and also uh, for the presidential candidate, they seem to me uh, they are adopting a very or a uh, rather pragmatic view uh, on this. So uh, in the meantime, uh, we should uh, use this kind of advantage about the culture ties across Taiwan Strait. And in the meantime, we all know that uh, there is a uh, rising nationalism in China right now. And also uh, the top leaders in China, they are uh, still want to uh, unify uh, Taiwan by all means. So for KMT supporters, we all know that if the KMT and uh, uh, the presidential candidate right now becomes the president in the near future, we need to be very cautious about the interactions across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, so some people would say the KMT is a pro-China party, pro-unification party, but my take is as a uh, perspective from academia. I would say among all major political parties in Taiwan, KMT, maybe some people would label KMT as such, but to me, I would say KMT is a political party 
who knows China better. The KMT has the experiences uh, interact with China and also learning from the experiences. We all know that defense dialogue and de-escalation, these are the key strategies Taiwan should adopt to sustain and secure ourselves. Definitely. That seems, yeah, consistent with what the KMT has said for a long time. I found this quote from a, from a book written by KMT politician Xiao Zhonghai um, in 1998. In other words, uh, the essence of the cross-strait issue is definitely not a partisan struggle or a struggle over land. Rather, it's a struggle between systems and a way of life. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, it sounds very consistent with what, what you were talking about as well. It also, uh, Faithon's point from the DPP perspective about even if you were to acquiesce that, oh, we, we share common ancestry and culture, the difference in regime can't be understated. Yeah, maybe I can add one point is to uh, what Dr. Lucas shared that I, I think if you look at the polling right now, the, the, the majority of Taiwanese people, according to a lot of different polling, if you ask Taiwanese people uh, about their identity, I think the majority, very clear majority of Taiwanese people that they're recognizing themselves as Taiwanese. But if you look at the polling that you ask people, uh, would you recognize yourself as Chinese? At least record, uh, according to the latest polling from Academic Sinecar, one of the uh, polling from Academic Sinecar is that there are only 2.3% of people in Taiwan that recognize themselves purely Chinese. So that number is quite, to be honest, that for Beijing or for, for CCP is quite striking. Like not so many people already recognize themselves as purely Chinese. But if you ask them, where you recognize yourself as both Taiwanese and Chinese, some data shows that there's 20 something percent of Taiwanese people recognize themselves like as both Taiwanese and, and Chinese, but that's based on yeah. the, the cultural similarities or because of ancestries. So to be honest, that the, from our point of view, the shared culture between Taiwan and China, it, it's not the basic criteria for the two countries to to think about their common future. It should be uh, more discussion about not just the identity, but about the ways of, uh, the way of life. And also, I mean, the political system you believe in. That's, uh, I think that's a major differences. But in terms of the, uh, the policies to uh, China, I would say I'm pretty respect that what uh, Dr. Liu has shared, that the KMT has their own mm. so-called 3D policy, like yeah. defense, dialogue and, uh, and, and de-escalation. But to be honest that in the past couple of years, we have been seeing that our defense efforts of the DPP administration have somehow been faced challenges by KMT and even some like weapons purchase or indigenous, uh, weapon system developments also being questioned by the KMT and somehow our strategies, like asymmetric strategy, uh, also being uh, criticized by, by some KMTers. So it seems that there is a, a differences, a different under, understanding of our defense strategy between KMT and DPP. And I believe that uh, you're, if you're asking the KMT, what the 3D policy, the, the priority of that, I think 
from our understanding is that they put the dialogues as on top uh, rather than the defense. Well, they probably would say that uh, they, they can break even, like do all the things like defense, dialogues, and the escalation at, at the same time. But it seems to us that in the past, especially during under uh, my angels period, that I put so many focuses on purely dialogue rather than developing our defense system. So I think that DPP right now, uh, we know that uh, the imbalance between the two uh, military, POA and our M&D uh, force. Uh, so we know that what's at stake, we need to put more focuses on our defense development rather than purely focusing on dialogue. Yeah, uh, I think Fei Fan uh, explained uh, their position very well. Uh, but let me lay out some uh, facts here. Uh, we all know that uh, for uh, the KMT, because in the past almost eight years, uh, KMT is the opposition. So in Congress, the opposition has the duty to watch over the budget, all budget, not only defense budget, but how to make it uh, explainable and easy to understand to the general public. I, I believe KMT... Uh, of course, there is always room for improvement. But let me just uh, mention one thing. Uh, we all know about Taiwan's uh, success in having our indigenous submarine. So what was the administration who initiated this plan? That was Maing Zhou. Okay, so as you can see, and especially for the 3D strategy, uh, the KMT already put defense as the first. That's what I was, I was reading uh, from uh, their articles. And also, they said that for asymmetric warfare, that is quite important. And especially not only the items, but also the con concept itself. We need to coordinate with our partners, especially the United States, on what are the real items we really need. So we need a lengthy and a very important in-depth coordination on those issues. I think that the Maichu was the, the one to mention about to announce the, the project, the uh, uh, indigenous submarine, but he never really put the energies and, and resources into uh, these policies. Actually, the implementation is actually uh, the present size administration actually pushed forward uh, the implementation. So now, including increasing the budgets for the indigenous submarine, and not just the submarine, but also our the fighter jets, indigenous fighter jets development. It's also our government to put those budgets in it and to implement it and to seek the cooperation with other nations to form, to develop our own indigenous uh, weapon systems. And, and not just that, one crucial uh, issues uh, even nowadays become the, uh, one of the main debates for this presidential election is that people's attitudes and different political parties' attitudes toward military reform, like conscription. That's one issue, key issues that have been recognized as a way to show the Taiwan's determinations and defending ourselves, right? But uh, as we know that when KMT is focused, saying that they are focusing on defense, but we don't actually know what's the real attitude towards like the one-year conscription. Uh, some say that they might going back for four months uh, if they get elected. Like previously, Hou Youyan uh, says that, and uh, now Zhao Shaokang reiterates the, the same stance on like going back for four months. 
but what's the real attitude? That's a debatable. I'm not saying that uh, it's not, it's only one direction that we can go, but uh, what's the KMT's attitude towards that? And what the main message that KMT want to send to the world about their determinations in defending ourselves? That's the questions by a lot of people. Okay, for that, actually, uh, KMT presidential candidate Hou Youyi, he published an article and uh, uh, all the messages I have heard uh, was quite positive about this article. Uh, the article came out on September 18th on Foreign Affairs. Uh, actually, in that article, he mentioned about this, about the conscription. Uh, he actually had already put some preconditions. We need to do an overall assessment about the situation across the Taiwan Strait. So it is not just simply uh, cut it back to four months. We need to put Taiwan security first. This is quite important. Secondly, one other thing, uh, also welcomed by many friends, uh, not only in the States, but around the world. Uh, it, because we noticed that the current situation across the Taiwan Strait, there are so much tension across the Taiwan Strait. So president, uh, presidential uh, candidate, Mayor Ho, he said that clearly, if he gets elected, he is going to establish an all-out mobilization committee in the ministerial level and will be supervised by the vice premier. Okay, so this is a quite clear policy argument uh, in this campaign. This is very, very important because we all know that all-out mobilization is quite important. But for now, uh, under uh, the Tsai administration, it is under the Ministry of National Defense. So we need to elevate that to the ministerial level to make coordination better. So that is the essence uh, of his idea uh, for defense policy. Yeah, so obviously deterrence is incredibly important to the Taiwanese people as a whole. I also think it's probably indisputable that the CCP absolutely despises Lai Qingde and Xiao Meiqin of the DPP. Uh, Xiao Meiqin, for her part, has been sanctioned twice as on the Taidu Wanggu Fansi list, so the Taiwan independence diehard separatist list. And for Hoyoi's part of the KMT, he's rejected um, the one country, two systems unification proposal. He's by no means the dream candidate of the CCP either. And I guess my question here, why is it the case that the CCP has better relations with the KMT, so much better relations with the KMT, even though in theory, the DPP would be perfectly willing to accept communist rule of the mainland. And it's the KMT which wants to unify and install their governments in mainland China. And like, uh, uh, Ho Youyi's vice president, vice presidential nominee, Zhao Shaokang, he supports unification, very strong unification supporter, but not with the People's Republic of China. He's pretty clear about that. Yeah, that's always been an interesting paradox to me. What, what, what do we learn about the CCP from the fact that they, they treat the DPP so, with so much hostility, even though it's, if you were just to read the party platforms, it's the KMT, which would seek to be an opposition party to the CCP. Yeah, uh, let me uh, explain about the VP candidate uh, Zhao Shaokang's position on this. Uh, my reading, uh, of course, I didn't have any chance to interact uh, with, with him in person, but my observation is people tend to see him as a pro-unification politician in Taiwan. 
part of the reason is he was one of the founders uh, to a uh, used to be a uh, very important political party in Taiwan. It's called New Party, uh, as uh, our host uh, mentioned earlier. Uh, New Party was actually established in the year 1993. Uh, Fei Fan was too young to remember this, <laughs> but I remember. Yeah, uh, back then New New Party uh, was quite powerful, uh, especially in the Taipei City mayoral election in 1994. And new party, part of its uh, political party platform is for unification. And for that, I think back then, not only the majority uh, people in Taiwan maybe identify themselves as Chinese or and Chinese plus Taiwanese, but also uh, this is about uh, some kind of uh, power struggling within the KMT because this group of uh, gentlemen and ladies uh, they used to be KMT members, and uh, they noticed that uh, KMT back then was under Li Denghui, and um, uh, they thought that Li Denghui was leaning to Taiwan independence. So they are using this as their leverage, as a uh, political proposition uh, to garner the support uh, from the general public. So by saying pro-unification, this is one of the strategies they adopted vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the KMT back then, under Li Denghui back then. Uh, so for now, uh, I would say uh, my observation is Mr. Zhao seems to be also very pragmatic to me because uh, he mentioned for many, many times he didn't go for unification with the CCP because it's a communist regime. But from the Beijing's perspective, of course, just as uh, our host uh, mentioned, maybe uh, this is a, uh, a tough call for Beijing, which candidates Beijing prefers. But I think uh, no matter what, uh, the decision is going to be made by Taiwanese people. So uh, Beijing should definitely respect this. And for now, I would say uh, Xi Jinping has already, already has a full plate, so many things to do. So I don't think it is wise uh, to put the Taiwan issue as the first priority uh, to Xi Jinping right now. So from KMT's perspective, I would argue how to maintain the status quo. That is the most uh, key issue to all candidates in Taiwan. And for the KMT, of course, they had the experiences uh, interacting with China. So maybe there will be a better chance uh, for them uh, to cool down the situation by uh, having and uh, resume the dialogue uh, across the Taiwan Strait. But as we have debated, <laughs> deterrence is still quite important to Taiwan. Yeah, I, I, I can add a couple of points. I, I think that's why people think that uh, KMT is more preferable for the CCP. It's quite clear about, if you look at the track record, in the past experience, we have like KMT last time KMT was in power between 2008 to 2016. That, that eight years, actually, uh, the KMT, based on the foundation they both agree uh, with, which is the 1992 consensus, that KMT signed over 22 agreements with Beijing from social cooperation to economic cooperations 
like ECFA, like Crash Rate Services Trade Agreements. And if the Crash Rate Services Trade Agreement uh, wasn't being stopped by the student movement in 2014, they probably will move forward to pursue more economic cooperation with, uh, with China. So I, I think that eight years, to be honest, it's quite clear that we opened the door for the Chinese investors, the Chinese, uh, Chinese in China and in Taiwan uh, exchange. And even nowadays, I think people are still arguing that uh, that leaves a, a lot of space for uh, Chinese to infiltrate into Taiwan's society in different levels, from school to, to religious sectors to community sectors. And without the whole national security thinking uh, to protecting our own uh, national security, that's uh, quite concerning for a lot of people. So, so I think that's for Beijing's point of view, while that eight years definitely is a honeymoon between Taiwan and China that excited a lot of agreements that if they succeed, they will push forward again and again to, 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 to seek more cooperation or so integrate Taiwan into the Chinese orbit. That's why we are uh, worried. So I think that look at uh, the history that you will find that KMT is more preferable for Beijing for these reasons, because they're more tolerant uh, or more willing to sign agreements uh, or to accept the terms set by Beijing. That's the KMT's uh, performance in the past eight years. But why they think DPP is not, I mean, the favorable political parties in Taiwan, I think, uh, it's quite clear as well that we choose to strengthen our cooperation with the United States, with our allies like in Japan or uh, other regional countries, and also even countries in Europe. That we are seeking more like-minded country, as we say, like-minded country, which means that the democratic uh, partners in the world. That's our direction. We try to move from the previous track, like purely putting Taiwan into Chinese orbit to a direction that uh, strengthening our cooperation with the democratic allies. And that's our, uh, I think that's our choice. But why we made this choice, what we cannot do, like do the balance, like play in a neutral way. I think that's quite clear that the whole uh, strategic environment around Taiwan has been changed, especially it's changed by Xi Jinping's ambition. That we're seeing that after 2012, that Xi Jinping's attitude toward the whole region is quite clear. You can see that uh, he's pushing forward uh, One Belt, One Road, uh, Belt and Road Initiative. is putting forward the uh, reintegration of uh, Hong Kong and trying to absorb Hong Kong again and turn Hong Kong into a normal Chinese city. That we have, we have seen that. And we're seeing the situation in Xinjiang, the situation in uh, the Chinese civil society has been cracked down by the CCP harshly. And we see there's no civil society uh, space for the Chinese people. So that's the problem we've seen. And we see that they're militarizing the South China Sea. They are invading not just Taiwan's ID, ADIZ, but also they are invading the Ch uh, Japanese EEZ uh, almost a daily basis. So they're breaking the status quo. So while we uh, want to do for the DPP administration over the last seven years is try to secure the status quo. In a way, it, you need to push back those efforts by CCP that try to alter uh, the status quo. I think that's that's a basic uh, strategic environment we face. So that makes us need to 
have a stronger stance on forming a stronger alliance with uh, our democratic partners rather than focusing on purely cooperating with China or agree uh, the, the terms or conditions set by China. So I think that's a basic difference between KMT and DPP. Yeah, what I hear you saying there, it's, it's not so much the Taiwan independence part of the platform per se. It's more that Taiwan is willing to engage diplomatically with other countries like in the US and Europe. That's really offensive to the CCP. Like they've had um, yeah. recently successes in the Czech Republic and Lithuania. Professor, here's a hypothetical for you. Um, you mentioned Hong Kong a little bit ago. When the Hong Kong protests were occurring in 2019, there was a vocal minority, not very many, but there were enough people who felt so, so strongly about uh, the way the CCP was uh, mistreating them in Hong Kong that they advocated for Hong Kong independence. Um, I don't think that was a majority position, but it was substantial enough. And I guess um, I've always wondered, let's imagine a hypothetical world in which everyone in Hong Kong aired all the same grievances they had with the extradition law, with the booksellers, with national security, everything. But nobody said a peep about independence. Do you think Xi Jinping would have used a softer touch with Hong Kong? Or would that have made no difference at all? I don't think that uh, Xi Jinping's attitude toward Hong Kong is based on how many people in Hong Kong are advocating for Hong Kong independence. You see that there is a, a desire or ambitions for Beijing. It's actually after 2012 that they want to gradually train, change the status quo among the region. I mean, that's quite clear that the, their Hong Kong policy is not just a simple, I mean, uh, the single Hong Kong policy. It's coordinated with their own national security strategy, right? That's a grand strategy there for the Chinese, for CCP, that if you look at their investments in Southeast Asia, they're militarizing South China Sea, they're invading the ADIZ, trying to build the uh, uh, military base in South China Sea, all those efforts, there is an ambition there. They want to alter the status quo, want to change the political system, want to, so they couldn't leave any kind of space for a place that's been essential for the Chinese democracy or half democracy, right? Or Hong Kong representing the half democracy, half autonomy in Chinese society. If they succeed, that would have the implication for the Chinese mandate, right? So I, I think that's a simple, uh, very simple calculation. They're not basing on what Hong Kong, Hong Kongers attitudes. Uh, toward Beijing or their relationship with Beijing. They're cracking down Hong Kong based on the simple ideology about if there is one successful example in a Chinese society, in, in a Chinese city that can fully implement democracy, that would threaten the legitimacy of CCP's ruling and especially Xi Jinping's ruling. So I think the logic is that uh, it's no matter how much percentage of the Hong Kongers advocating for Hong Kong independence. It's more about how strong they're asking the full implementation of democracy. That's the reason. You see in the 2014 that there are not so many people are actually advocating for independence. In 2014, the majority of Hong Kong's activists, they're advocating for implements your promises to Hong Kong, that to gradually move Hong Kong from the half autonomy to a full democracy, like you can govern Hong Kong by Hong Kongers rather than CCP appointing someone to rule Hong Kong. 
So they're asking that in 2014, in 2016, the elections, and later on uh, in 2018, the extraditional bill. That's the whole trend. You can see that it's not triggered by the Hong Kong's demands. It's actually the Chinese reactions on the, their request for implementation of democracy. Uh, let me uh, respond to um, Fei Fan's comments, um, uh, earlier comment first. Uh, I think it is quite important to know that uh, as a uh, observer, trained as a political scientist, I think for KMT strategy, especially how to strike a balance between the cross-strait policy and its foreign policy, uh, it is quite important to know that KMT is supporting for a strategy in which we should make friends with both the globe and China. So KMT is not uh, leaning or hoping that uh, China would put Taiwan always uh, into uh, its orbit, if not the pocket. And also, it is quite important to know that under the Mainzhou administration, for all those kind of agreements, those are for functional issues. So this is based on functionalism, what we have learned from the European experiences for economic integration. So this kind of functional issues agreement uh, actually serve as uh, the base uh, to restore certain kind of political trust across the Taiwan Strait so that we don't need to worry too much about potential conflict or skirmish across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, I'm not saying that China is not putting any military threat to Taiwan, but I think we need to develop a pragmatic way of dealing with it. And even for VP Lai, he once said he wants to have dinner with Xi Jinping. So if we do not have this kind of exchanges uh, on functional issues, I don't think there will be any political base for uh, the two politicians to meet with each other. And also one other indication is under the Mainzhou administration, uh, Taiwan got to participate the WHA and ICAO. So that is also one way of demonstrating Taiwan's sovereign status uh, to the world. So I personally don't think that interacting with China and engaging with the world are mutually exclusive. So this is quite important. And uh, adding to that, uh, if this kind of anti-China strategy or logic is uh, accurate all the time, then we wouldn't see uh, President Biden meeting with President Xi, and we wouldn't expect to see the Kihida administration from Japan. Uh, he's going to maybe in the uh, months to come uh, to meet with Xi Jinping. So I think this is quite important that we should employ pragmatism, not necessarily ideology, to deal with China. And coming back to the Hong Kong issue, this is, this is quite important. And I believe if the KMT becomes the ruling party, uh, the KMT would provide a certain kind of strategy on this issue. Because uh, part of the reason is KMT also think that uh, human rights issues are uh, king uh, to our interaction with China. So that should be highlighted as well. I think that we all recognize that there is a communication needs between Taiwan and China, that we are not excluding any part possibility to have a dialogue with China. But it seems to me that the basic difference between the KMT and DPP is that what condition you're going to accept uh, in terms of uh, having dialogue with 
Beijing. Like for Beijing's requirement for uh, or their demands to Taiwan is that you have to agree with both Taiwan and China all in one China. Like uh, the 1990 consensus defined by Beijing in 2019, especially in Xi Jinping's announcement. That's quite clear that the, the, the 1990 consensus is a, it, a pillar for moving toward the unification, right? And that condition is that set by Beijing and trying to enforce Taiwan to accept that in all the dialogue spaces, that dialogues you want to have with Beijing, you have to agree that both Taiwan and China are just one China. So I, I think the basic difference is that we, we recognize the importance to having dialogue. We hope that there is a channel for the mutual communication. But if we send a signal to all over the world, like what uh, President Ma did in 2008 to 2016, during that time, we shows a signal for the world that both Taiwan and China are one China. So if you're asking people to supporting us in the military or security cooperation, you face the difficulties that people charge your credibilities, charge your uh, determination. That's the, the problem we face. I think this administration found that, well, as President Tsai, both President Tsai and the VP Lai has publicly reiterated again and again about their stance of welcoming the dialogue between Taiwan and China. But it should be without uh, the preconditions. That's our stance. But for the KMT side, uh, I think their thinking is that if you strategically agree with some political condition, then you can have in dialogue to maintain uh, the so-called cross-state dialogues. But on the other hand, you have to sacrifice not just the national stance, but it's not actually coordinate with the majority of Taiwanese people thinking. The majority of Taiwanese people believe that there's no such 1992 consensus. That majority of Taiwanese people actually oppose that in the, the, the past couple of years. You, you, we have seen in multiple pollings and even voting behaviors that people are not agree with the 1992 consensus. They are not agree with that Taiwanese leader going to the Hong Kong of CTP's Hong Kong liaison office, the people are not welcoming this. So I think that's the basic differences between between DPP and KMT. Yeah, uh, I think Fei Fan uh, provided a very straightforward explanation about the definition of 92 consensus. Uh, yeah. However, unfortunately, his definition is not the real definition uh, of uh, 92 consensus. Uh, according to the exchanges between the KMT and the, uh, the Beijing government, uh, in the year 1992, it stated, let me put it simply, uh, it is, uh, as Feifan just mentioned, but one thing is very, very important. By KMT, by Taipei's definition, that one China is Republic of China. It is Taiwan. It is Republic of China. Okay, so, so this is the major difference between KMT and also uh, CCP. And also, Feifan's definition, it is very interesting. He borrowed the definition from Xi Jinping. So uh, their definition is shared by CCP and DVP to some degree, uh, to some people in Taiwan. So uh, I think it is quite important uh, to make sure that if we need to resume certain uh, dialogue across the Taiwan Strait, or at least the channels of communication across the Taiwan Strait, uh, I don't think... Uh, 
uh, under KMT, there will be any sacrifice in our sovereignty. As I just mentioned, even under uh, President Ma ying many people try to tend him that as a uh, uh, just too welcoming uh, to, to China by signing all the agreements, uh, by having those kind of dialogues and even have meeting with Xi Jinping by himself. But I think to, to, to me uh, as a scholar, I would say it is quite important to follow the logic or at least we need to understand the logic of functionalism. Of course, we need to uh, be very cautious uh, about uh, the possible outcome or the consequence, but how to manage the uncertainties. That is the major task to all leaders around the world. If I understand both sides correctly, basically DPP says, if you say one China, different interpretations, the whole world is going to understand that to mean China, meaning like the People's Republic of China. So we've made a concession, whether or not, it doesn't matter what we believe, it matters what the world believes. And then from the KMT point of view, it says, listen, we say one China, different interpretations. Our interpretation of ROC, Republic of China, being that one China, that's still super valid. And it's okay to accept that precondition because then we can do a whole bunch of other functional and important things like make cross-strait economic arrangements and um, have actual dialogues with CCP leaders. Is that about right? Uh, let me add one thing uh, because for even for KMT uh, leaders for now, uh, we know that the idea or the term 92 consensus is uh, somehow tainted. Uh, so uh, for the presidential candidate of KMT right now, uh, he strongly suggested that even we have this kind of 92 consensus, it is definitely in, need to be in accordance with Republic of China's constitution. So this is quite important. And for that, uh, actually, if I can go deeper, it seem, seems to me the KMT right now admits uh, to the reality that in terms of uh, sovereignty, and jurisdiction, there is a difference. So we are not uh, recognizing each other's sovereignty because we think, or the KMT, uh, there will be some group of people think that uh, still we represent China. But in terms of jurisdiction, uh, there is no mutual denial on this. So in terms of issuing passport, uh, we have our authority, of course. So that's the reality. So how to deal with uh, the current cross-strait relations. Of course, uh, I believe for all political leaders in Taiwan, we have a long way to go. But how to forge certain kind of consensus based on the facts, that is the most important thing. I, I, I think that uh, I want to add one more point about the differences between KMT and DPP on this issue is that how we've seen the differences. I mean, the issue, not just about Taiwan and China, but about the security of Taiwan's trade, what should we see in uh, this issue? I think that's one major difference, as I heard uh, what uh, Dr. Liu said. Uh, it's more like about if you're agreeing with one China, that the Taiwan's issue with, uh, with China would be put simply as Chinese internal affairs. But it seems like if you are agreeing with the one, uh, one China, I mean, that would send a signal to the world that the issues related to Taiwan or issues related to Taiwan and China should just simply be solved by Chinese on both sides or what, or, or what you want to describe, like uh, just purely Taiwan or, or China. 
But from our point of view, it's quite different that we believe that the issues of Taiwan Strait should be an international affairs. It's not, it's not just purely between Taiwan and China. It shouldn't be like a Chinese internal affairs. So I think based on this thinking that if you want to put it more logically, that if you have set the political condition there for one China, then you cannot just simply say, yes, we agree on this, uh, the dialogues on one China, but we didn't agree with the other issues on different conditions, right? It's not, it's not logical. Your legal claims should be coherent, but if you're abandoning some of your legal uh, stance, uh, you agree with uh, one China, but on the other hand, you want to say that in other fields, we want to leave the open and that they become the international affairs. How that can be logical in terms of our relations. So from our position, it's quite clear that uh, we believe that the ROC Taiwan uh, is a sovereign country, that ROC Taiwan is a sovereign country, which means that the ROC and PRC should not subordinate it to each other. So the issue related to Taiwan and China or the issues of Taiwan Strait, the peace and stability across Taiwan Strait should be the international affairs rather than just purely the Chinese internal affairs. I think that's the logic behind it. Yeah. I think for all KMT uh, politicians, none of them, uh, at least I have never heard that any one of them suggested that uh, the uh, cross-strait relations or Taiwan's uh, relations with mainland China is internal affair. I, I don't think so. So it is quite important uh, to know that. Again, uh, I, I think Feifan did a good job by pointing out that uh, the DPP's the position uh, is so straightforward. But we all know that uh, in reality, nothing would be that simple or straightforward. So it is quite important we need to interact uh, across the Taiwan Strait uh, with our counterparts to understand what they are thinking about the future of the, the cross-strait relations, uh, the relations with the rest of the world. Those are the key tasks for uh, the KMT if the KMT is to win uh, the upcoming presidential election. But also in the meantime, the KMT doesn't say that it is not important to coalesce with our friends around the world. Actually, KMT also suggested that we should cooperate, collaborate with like-minded countries, like-minded democracies around the world, not only for uh, security, but also for Taiwan's economic prosperity. So that is quite important. So to me, I would not say that there is a, uh, a huge difference about Taiwan's security uh, between KMT and uh, DBP, but how to achieve that goal that makes the difference uh, between the two major parties. So yeah, just figure out as one point about like uh, Dr. Lu says that no one in KMT says that the uh, issue of Taiwan Strait is the uh, Chinese in internal affairs, but actually the director of international department of KMT, Alexander Huang, once said, uh, it's actually last year uh, in June, he says that the uh, uh, Taiwan Strait is actually in the water of the Chinese Sea. So I think it's quite clear. He made, he made it on, on an, inter, an interview, in an interview uh, by TV. Uh, so he made that point and he actually faced a lot of criticism on this. I still remember that. And you can Google it. Actually, it's there, still there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> how to deal with that? No one says it's a Chinese internal affairs. So, so that's mm -hmm. it.
we can talk about this single issue forever. That's why there's a whole election solely on the basis of this issue, because it's so hard to resolve this problem. Yeah, yeah. It's been super fun. Don't want to be out here forever. Before we head, um, I want to quickly ask just very briefly about each of your uh, DPP and KMP platform. If the China issue were to be resolved magically, just snap your fingers, it's gone. Somehow it's resolved. What would be left of your platforms? What are the what are the key differences between your parties? I think if there is no differences between KMT and DPP in terms of the uh, the crochet stance, I would say that DPP is more linear to the social welfare policies. It's more like a central. I would say by definition, it would be a more central left or like a more liberal political party. But com- compared to the KMT. Uh, we're more willing to accept the more progressive ideas. For example, LGBTQ's rights, uh, we achieved that during our terms in the government, right? And uh, we have the subsidies for like young parents, and we are putting uh, more budgets on uh, long-term healthcare and for the elderly, and also putting more energies on the, some infrastructure bills to push forward some uh, infrastructure developments. I think on social issues, those are also the concerns uh, to KMT. And adding to that, I would say uh, economic development would be very, very important because we witness our uh, economic uh, growing rate was actually dwarfed uh, by the neighboring countries uh, in the Indo-Pacific region. The, The other issue is about energy, Taiwan's energy. Uh, because we know that we need to do this net zero, uh, those kind of things. And also, I would say energy issue and the economic development, they are two sides of the same coin. So how to manage uh, this kind of risks and uncertainties, uh, those are quite important. And also education, uh, that is quite important uh, to to Taiwan, because we know that uh, the birth rate uh, was actually quite low. Uh, in the past few years uh, in Taiwan. So how to uh, make sure that everybody can have quality education so that we can have a quality labor force in the years to come or uh, for the decades to come. I think those are quite uh, important issues to uh, sustain uh, Taiwan uh, in the future. Yeah, and I imagine even with the omniscient brooding of the China question, Taiwanese voters were still going to be deeply concerned about a lot of domestic issues, like you're talking about economic growth, inflation, um, energy and infrastructure is a huge thing, the, the nuclear power issue, future of higher education and funding for universities. These are all going to be big issues for voters. Do you have a sense on what's of those domestic issues, what's going to be the most important for Taiwanese voters who go to the polls in 46 days? I would say for the younger generation, uh, housing, uh, employment rate, and also uh, salary, those are the, the, the key issues here. And of course, uh, if any ruling party can do a good job on those issues, then that can somehow increase uh, the chance that uh, the younger generation, they would like to uh, help to have more children around so that uh, that can deal with the low birth rate issue uh, in Taiwan as well. I think that the economy is still uh, one of the major concerns uh, for, I mean, for general public in Taiwan, right? the economic growth. While we've seen that the, the, the year before is that we have faced COVID, 
I mean, internationally, globally, that everyone's been hit by COVID situation. But it seems that Taiwan's come, Taiwan's performance compared to a lot of different countries that seems, I would say, is still like relatively better than other countries. But I know that there are still many people that have been suffered uh, uh, during the COVID, right? That the livelihood and also the, uh, the their living, there's uh, a huge impacts of individuals for not just traveling, doing business or like uh, ordinary people that have been all, all been affected by COVID. But the post-COVID period that we have been entering now is like how to stimulate the, uh, the economy and how how to make the society more resilient, uh, that's one of the major concerns for the DPP administration right now. So uh, we have the certain policy platform announced by the VP lies that in the future coming years that we are going to pursue a more resilient economy, including that we're trying to not just focusing on the semiconductors that we are already in the position that is quite compared to a lot of countries, we are in a very good com uh, competitive uh, position. but not just that, we're also going to help the small and medium business to develop and to to have more, to heighten more employee rates, right? Uh, so that's uh, that's the policies that we are going to pursue for uh, creating jobs and helping young families to raise kids, the subsidies for social welfare. That's the policy direction that we're moving more. Yeah. Related to, yeah, you mentioned semiconductors and subsidies um, for economic growth. What are the DPP and KMT's respective positions about subsidies to critical national security industries? Like if you have a finite amount of money and you can invest that in hard military assets, or you could invest that in subsidizing national security infrastructure like semiconductors, what do your parties support with regards to resource allocation or funding for subsidies? Is it better to do all hard military assets or should we focus more on the critical technologies or should we split it half and half? What do your parties say about that? Okay. Uh, I'm not a uh, economist by training, but I will try my best to answer this very difficult, challenging question. It is quite important uh, to understand because this is a highly competitive, interdependent world. It is legitimate for all countries to uh, develop their own uh, legal system uh, in subsidy for those crucial industries. So it is totally understandable. Uh, for Taiwan in the years to come, I think one thing is how to consolidate uh, our high-tech industries around the world. That is uh, the, the, the key issue here. For doing that, maybe this kind of subsidy uh, would be necessary uh, in, in some ways. Uh, but also in the meantime, national security, especially uh, those infrastructures, are also very, very important to Taiwan. So my, uh, my hunch would be that won't be a uh, equal uh, split between these two things. We need to weigh one item, maybe not against the other, but we need to somehow uh, on a rolling basis reconsider and readjust our strategies uh, for those industries and the national security infrastructure. And uh, one other thing is also very, very critical how to increase our GDP, how to make our economy better so that we can be more uh, better uh, resourced uh, to fund uh, those industries and also in the meantime to have 
necessary national security infrastructure for us? I, I think that both military, uh, I mean, defense industries or, or critical industries in Taiwan are, are very crucial for the Taiwan's national security. For those critical uh, industries, especially semiconductor industry, it's actually a pillar for the Taiwan's growth, not just the economy growth, but also it's a core of the national security strategy right now uh, to maintain our, our advantages in this process to keep the economy resilient also, but, but not just our economy, but also for the, our national security, because a lot of semiconductor products, those chips actually, no, no matter is mature node or is advanced node, those products are somehow being implemented to be used in some different area. For example, the advanced node, uh, it's been used by, by CCP in AI process, like uh, products, all those things. But the mature node we have been trying to maintain, but China is now competing with us, uh, trying to put more subsidies and to help the development of the mature node process. But for, for our point of view is like, we cannot just abandon one suit or wait one to abandon one. It's not, it's not logical because a lot of mature, mature node semiconductors being used in some military weapons as well. So if the whole market has been somehow dominated by Chinese made uh, mature node, that would jeopardize our national security as well. And not just us, but also the United States. That's the reason why the U.S. Uh, seek to to the export controls on these, uh, on semiconductor products. So I, I think from our side, we need to cooperate with the U.S. side on, uh, certain export control policies, but we also have our own, right? And we also just passed the, uh, the Taiwan's, Taiwan Semiconductor, uh, our ship act, uh, just been passed a couple of months ago. We have the policy implemented, but in the future, I think that we also need to put more energies and or resources on on the mature node and also advanced node uh, to prevent uh, uh, this market being dominated by, by, by Chinese. But on the other hand, on military developments, investments still also very important. Now, the only, I think the only answer we have is that we need to rise the budget and somehow increasing the budget to help to boost these two area, not just one, but these two, we need to, we need to do more on this. So we need more yeah. money. <laughs> yeah, sure. indeed. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. I love that. Professor Lu has to teach a class in literally 10 minutes. So I think we'll have yeah. to end it there, unfortunately. We'll need a separate podcast episode about Taiwan's ship sack. This has been way too much fun for me. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you.
Yeah.